an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening. How's the sound? Pretty good all the way to the back? Yes? Okay. I have lights in my eyes and so I can't see you. That's too bad. It would be nicer if I could see you. Oh, that's better. Thank you. <laughs> now, now you can't see me. The middle way maybe, a little bit more. How are we doing? Can we see each other? The perfect situation. Well, first of all, uh, I want to say that I'm very happy to be here and feel very honored uh, to be able to address uh, this uh, special and wonderful and very kind, I'm sure, audience. So I really am happy to be here. I, uh, you know, our place is down the road, <laughs> and uh, so we really are neighbors, and we've done many things together uh, over the years since uh, Spirit Rock has uh, been here, and we feel very, very close, really and truly, uh, doing the same work. Uh, one might have thought, you know, we, we uh, have been at Muir Beach for a long time, uh, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 years before uh, Spirit Rock was founded. And you might think that, uh, that we would have less members, you know, it makes sense, right? That we would have less members uh, since Spirit Rock has come, but actually everyone has more members. So that's how things go. Uh, with, with friendship and cooperation, uh, everything increases, the good increases. Anyway, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, Zen and not, hopefully not too much so that we can have a chance for dialogue. And I thought it would be fun to give a real kind of Zen talk on a Zen topic since uh, probably there aren't a lot of Zen people who come to Spirit Rock, I'm assuming. Once in a while I'm sure you have one. But, and I don't usually uh, give, give Zen talks exactly, but I thought it would be nice to do a kind of Zen talk. <laughs> so I want to uh, present to you a traditional uh, subject uh, from a koan collection. You all, I'm sure, are familiar with the koan literature in Zen. It's a very special and unusual kind of religious literature. Uh, really, it's uh, the stories of the family, uh, tales of the family through the generations, uh, teaching stories. Uh, but they're different from usual teaching stories in that it's sometimes hard to tell what they're teaching. 
usual, usually teaching stories have a very neat and understandable point. So you hear the story and right away you, you understand what it's, what it's pointing toward. And uh, it's easy to understand but hard to do, you know. The point of the stories is usually quite easy to understand but hard to put them into your life's practice. Uh, the koan literature, sometimes it's sort of easy to understand. Other times it's quite hard to understand. Uh, and so you have to meditate on it. You have to actually bring it into your meditation practice. And when you do that over a period of time and you finally become the story, let go of your life and just there's nothing left but the story or the nub of the story, then then it's hard to understand but easy to put into practice in your life. And the way that we do that is we take the story or the nub of the story and we bring it to each breath literally in meditation practice, breathing in and breathing out, just holding the story in front of us, giving up uh, all ideas about what we think it means and abandoning all hope entirely and just being willing to merge with the story until hell freezes over if necessary. (laughs) Uh, In Zen they sometimes refer to this as the great doubt. And a very famous uh, saying of Master Muman in describing this process of working with a Zen story, uh, he says, uh, it's like swallowing a hot iron ball. You can't vomit it out and you can't swallow it either. It's just kind of stuck there. And then uh, he also says uh, later on in his description of this process of working with a Zen story that suddenly uh, heaven and earth part and everything is clear, something like that. So sometimes it happens like that where (coughs) this devotion uh, to penetrating uh, the story's essence uh, leads to a sudden realization. Sometimes it's not so dramatic, but little by little uh, we come to appreciate and understand and personalize the story so that it's not an external story, but it's something that's truly Uh, in our own lives. Um, One of the key things uh, in many of the stories is their incredible uh, seeming pointlessness. They're purposely, uh, some of them are described as, you know, being like a 10,000 foot cliff, you know, no place to grab onto, no ropes, no toehold. And uh, this may seem, and you know, there's many jokes about Zen, you know, for this sort of thing. Uh, But really and truly, there is uh, a point uh, to this pointlessness. And the point is that uh, our problem mainly is we really would like to understand everything and have control over our lives and be able to choose how things will turn out, like should the lights be high or low. We would like to work it out so that we could say the lights are going to be high and then they're going to be high. We say they're going to be low, they're going to be low. And we would even like to use Buddha Dharma to aid us 
in this process of working things out to our satisfaction. But uh, basically that's a losing proposition uh, and we really have to get used to the idea of letting go of our need to understand and our need to know and our need to control, anticipate, and just be willing to be present and have some level of comfort with not knowing have some level of comfort with not understanding, have some level of comfort with not controlling things. And so, in order to penetrate these stories that seem so pointless, we actually have to let go completely of our mind. And uh, this is very liberating and very freeing and sets us in motion toward a way of life. Uh, That's, while it may look from the outside pretty much the same as usual, from the inside, it can be quite revolutionary. So that's kind of the point of working with Zen stories. So that's my introduction. Just in case uh, many of you, I'm assuming many of you don't, uh, are not familiar with the process of working with Zen stories. So the story for today is from the Blue Cliff Record, which is a book of 100 Zen stories that was compiled in the 12th century. Uh, You know, these stories originated from actual encounters between uh, teachers and disciples in the old, mostly in the old monasteries in China. And then, as you can imagine, they were these, the really good dialogues and and really good incidents were passed down by word of mouth as illustrative of this particular teacher's method of teaching or understanding of Dharma. Later on, they became written down, and finally they were collected into various collections with commentaries and so on and so on. And the Blue Cliff Record is one of the very famous and most important collections, and it has a hundred cases. And this is uh, case number six of the Blue Cliff Record, uh, which is called, uh, sometimes uh, they're given titles, it's called uh, Yunmen's Every Day's a Good Day. Some of the stories are the, they call the case. The case is the little story. It's going to be quite short. Some of the uh, stories in the collection have introductions. This one doesn't. It just starts out with the case. And here's the case. Yunmen said, I don't ask you about before the 15th day. Try to say something about after the 15th day. And Yunmen himself answered for everyone. Every day is a good day. So that's the case. (laughs) So Yunmen is a very famous uh, Zen teacher. He's one of those uh, shouting and beating types of Zen teachers. The... um, line of Zen known as Rinzai in Japanese is famous for lofty, uh, difficult teaching and shouting and beating. And the Soto line, which is our line, is famous for uh, simplicity and stupidity. And <laughs> it's the Zen for uh, villages and farmers. But uh, still, we, we study the Rinzai as well. 
And Yunmen uh, had very famous, he was very famous for certain kinds of teaching techniques. And um, one of them is evident in this story. He would often get up on the high seat, like I'm sitting here, you know, and hold forth to the community, ask some great Dharma question. And before anybody could say anything, he would answer the question himself, as he does in this story. He was also famous for uh, one word. Zen, where people would ask a question and he would always respond with one word. Uh, sometimes, uh, for a long time, one word, and then maybe after several years, he'd switch to another word. And uh, <laughs> one word uh, that he had was uh, something like, uh, would be translated as something like, pay attention, or, you know, watch out. So whatever you asked, whatever you said, pay attention, you know, watch out, which is really pretty good when you think about it. <laughs> You ask a question, and the answer is, pay attention. So that's good. And the other one, another one that he had was, uh, he had another famous one-word answer called, HA! Anybody would ask a question, he would just say, HA! Whatever they said. So, um, he also, uh, here's another, so in, in the commentary to the, case. Uh, there are many st- various stories about Yunmen. Uh, some of them I, I want to share with you because they're, they're pretty good, I think. Uh, somebody asked him, uh, when you kill your father and mother, you repent before the Buddha. When you kill the Buddhas, who do you repent before? And Yunmen, again, gave a one-word answer, exposed exposed, or you could say open, completely open. So when you kill your father and mother, when you, meaning uh, when you commit a moral transgression and you repent before the Buddha, then it's clear you repent before the Buddha, but what happens when you go beyond that? What happens when you even kill the Buddha and you go beyond moral codes, not to say you go beyond moral behavior, but you go beyond rules and regulations in your own head. You go to freedom. Go beyond Buddha. Then what? Exposed. That's good, don't you think? Yeah. Um, another one, uh, this which is actually uh, given here, but it's also a, a case in another collection. This is a very interesting one. He had an attendant named Yuan, and um, he would all the time, uh, you know, say, Yuan, and Yuan would say, you know, yes, and Yunmen would say, what is it? (laughs) And then uh, it says here in the commentary, it went on like this for 18 years. <laughs> uh, when one day uh, Yuan finally awakened, finally became enlightenment, enlightened, and Yun Men told him, from now on I won't call you anymore. <laughs> and that's another case in, a, in, another, in another book. The uh, why, uh, you know, often... Uh, one comes to these sorts of methods depending on one's experience uh, in training oneself. Uh, 
So Yunmen uh, trained under a famous Chinese master who was very, very strict. Uh, he would, uh, his method, his teacher, Yunmen's teacher's method, uh, Mujo, would, was that he would, uh, you know, like, jump on people and say, speak, speak! You know, like, what, what's your understanding of Buddhism? Speak, speak! And they, of course they would say, yeah, I don't know. And then he would, you know, walk away, right away. Uh, so, um, Yunman was a very eager student, so uh, he would do the same with Mujo. And one time, Mujo was uh, at a gate, said, speak, speak, uh, kicked Yunman out of the gate, walked away, and Yunman came bursting in through the gate, and Mujo slammed the gate shut with Yunman's leg in it, and Yunman broke his leg and was enlightened. <laughs> the story goes. These stories probably aren't entirely true, but <laughs> but uh, they're probably exaggerations of something that really happened. So that was his experience, you know, that was his training, and so he was, by comparison, in a way, pretty gentle. He just used words most of the time. He, uh, Mujo, he studied with Mujo for a number of years, and then Mujo sent him to another teacher, and uh, Yun Man went to the other teacher and said, What is Buddha? And uh, this is one of my favorite lines. What is Buddha? And the teacher said, Don't talk in your sleep. <laughs> it's a little bit like uh, the Buddhist Woody Allen, you know. Anyway, uh, after he uh, stayed with uh, Shui Feng, that was that teacher's name, for a while he went on to another uh, teacher who was very mystical. And uh, the story is given that uh, Ling Shu uh, was the head of a monastery. This was the, the next teacher he went to. Ling Shu was the head of the monastery, and uh, he never appointed a head monk. It was common for them, there to be a head monk guiding all the monks in the meditation hall, and Ling Shu never appointed one for 20 years. And when they would say, how come you don't appoint a head monk, he would say, my head monk is now being born. And then some years later he would say, my head monk is now you know, learning to ride a horse, or now my head monk is doing this and doing that. And one day he came up and he announced, now prepare the seat, the head monk is coming. And that was the day that Yunmen was coming. And Yunmen walked in and immediately was surrounded by people who said, you're the head monk. And he was surprised, but he did become the head monk. And that same uh, Ling Shu, the story goes, um, um, was being visited by the king. And uh, when he heard about this, he immediately uh, sat in the lotus position and died. Just, you know, and the king showed up and said, where, where is he? And they said, he's dead. And the king said, I, I, I didn't even know he was sick. And they said, well, he wasn't, but as soon as he heard you're coming, he just went <laughs> in the full lotus position and died. And he left this for you, and it, and it was a box, and inside the box was a little card that said about how great Yunmen was. And so the king, that's how Yunmen got to be master of a big monastery, because the king set up a monastery because of this. So, uh, so this is all fun, but what's the point you know, of it all? <laughs> And again, you know, I think this is obvious, don't you think, that if you look at your mind, if any of us looks at our mind uh, 
Our mind wants to dig a big rut. We like the familiar. And we make ourselves dull. We like attachment. We like pleasure. And with attachment and pleasure comes suffering. When uh, Yun Men's teacher, as I said, would say, speak, speak, often when the student didn't respond, before he went away, he would say, an antique drill turning in a rut. An antique drill turning in a rut. You know, once you start drilling a hole, you just keep going with that same hole. Your life isn't fresh. Uh, Conditions uh, arise and you're not there, really, to meet them. So the point of this kind of teaching and of this, this kind of study and of the koan practice uh, is to really get ourselves to the position where we are able, as much as humanly as possible, uh, to meet uh, situations of our lives uh, fresh. To have a big, wide, open heart but no rules and no boundaries. Not holding on to anything, not holding ourselves apart. Not holding ourselves, uh, protecting ourselves with principles, even good Buddhist principles. What is it when you kill the Buddha? Exposed. So this is our effort Uh, in Zen practice, is to be exposed, to be open, to be surprised all the time, uh, to meet conditions. And this, you know, this may seem um, self-centered or some sort of artsy spontaneity or something like that. But really, uh, when you um, purify your heart of attachments, and habits, and rules, and good and bad, and so on. What happens is that the the goodness that is your fundamental nature comes forward. And you really do have an open heart. Uh, Not um, saccharine sweet, or bound by your heart, but really being willing to be there and, and figure out right now, you know, what's the way to be, what's the way to respond, what's the way to live this moment without holding on to anything. So Yun Men says, I don't ask about before the fifteenth day, uh, but what about after the fifteenth day? And he answered for himself, every day is a good day. Uh, there's a little bit of explanation to this. Uh, makes it a little bit more makes sense. Uh, the 15th day means uh, the full moon, the middle of the month. And uh, on the middle of the month, the Chinese monks of old, and we still do this today, and they do it also in Theravada countries, um, confess to each other and repeat uh, the monastic rule, read the monastic rule to each other. 
in our uh, center, we do this too. We uh, renew our commitment to the Bodhisattva precepts on the full moon. And in some of the, sometimes when we do that, we actually have a confession ceremony certain times of the year where we sit down together and we say, here's how I've kept the precepts, here's my conduct, how it's been. So this is, he's asking about, uh, he's bringing up the question of our conduct, our moral conduct, our behavior. And he's challenging uh, the monks not to think of it in a cumulative, moralistic way. I was good, I was bad, you know, I sinned, I, I did a good thing, I didn't do a good thing. Uh, I don't ask about before the 15th day. I'm not asking you about your conduct in the past. And really, when he says, I'm, I'm asking about uh, after the 15th day, it's as if he's saying, I'm asking you not to repent for your sins of the past, but to repent for your sins of the future that haven't been committed yet, which is a non-sequitur. You know. So he's saying, I'm asking you to look at your conduct beyond right and wrong and beyond rules. I'm asking you to understand that there is no 15th day other than right now at all times. And what's the nature of that kind of conduct? And he answered uh, on his own behalf, every day is a good day. Or maybe we could say, uh, every moment is a good moment. Our uh, founder of Zen Centers, uh, Suzuki Roshi, who I'm sure many of you know about, an author of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and a very wonderful Zen teacher, uh, made a comment to this case, and I want to read you a little bit of his commentary, because I think it's very apropos and and very deep. He said, uh, each existence, animate and inanimate, is changing during every moment, day and night. The change is like flowing water, which does not ever come back, and which reveals its true nature in its eternal travel. Water flowing and clouds drifting are similar to a well-trained old Zen master. And this is what they call Zen monks, clouds and water. It's actually the name in Japanese for Zen monks, unsui, which means clouds and water. True nature of water and clouds is like the determined, single-minded, traveling monks who did not take off their traveling sandals even under the roof of sages. In other words, nowhere to hold on, nowhere to stop, nowhere to say, this is my principle, this is where I live, this is where I always just meeting each moment like a traveling monk. Worldly pleasure, philosophical pursuit, or whimsical ideas Do not interest the traveling monk, sincere to his or her true nature, for she does not want to be fat and idle. Such a monk does not care for hospitality, which would stop his travels. He recognizes as true friends only those who travel with him on his way. The idea of this kind of travel may make you feel lonely and helpless. In Japan, Zen is understood by the word Wabi or sabi, these two words are nouns, but today they are mostly used as adjectives. One meaning of wabi and sabi is lonesome and monotonous.
the intellectuals, uh, he's speaking of Japanese intellectuals, uh, who understand these words to mean the simplest and most humble form and style of beauty, lonesome and simple and monotonous. Um, then he says, um, it is this reality which makes subjective and object of observation possible and perfect and which makes everything, simple or fancy, able to come home to our heart. So this clouds and water, uh, simple meeting of the conditions of constant, really and truly eternal change without making a nest for ourselves anywhere. So every day is a good day, you know, isn't a kind of Pollyanna statement. You know, don't worry, be happy. Everything is going to work out okay. Everything's going to be fine. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be jolly and happy all the time and see everything as good in the sense of good that's different from bad. In a more profound sense, every day is a good day and everything is for the good. But this doesn't mean that we don't notice suffering and trouble and all the things in ourselves and in our world that are wrong. The other day, uh, I was uh, in the mountains in the High Sierra, and uh, we encountered uh, tremendous storms. It rained quite a bit. And uh, I spent part of a day watching the clouds, powerful, huge clouds, you know, changing very fast, blowing across the sky, some storm clouds, some beautiful fluffy white clouds, some thin clouds, some thick clouds, many, many, many miles of dark clouds bearing rain and wind and lightning and thunder. Every cloud's a good cloud. Um, this morning I was having uh, breakfast with one of my sons, who's 20 years old, and uh, he's house-sitting in a nearby house, and uh, he, so he came over for breakfast, and he said, uh, I hope he doesn't mind if I tell you what he said. He was uh, having, uh, he's in college, and he was having a big party with a bunch of his high school friends. And they were drinking and having a great party and everything. And he said, you know, it's really sad because he said, I didn't really feel like doing, you know, partying with them. I didn't really feel the same way that I felt two years ago when we were high school seniors together. So we were trying to recreate that feeling. And maybe they were able to do it, but I really couldn't do it. And I, and I went to bed and they stayed up all night long. And, party, but I, I just went to bed. And he said, that's kind of sad. He said, but, you know, uh, I was nice. I didn't, like, say anything or complain. And it was pleasant enough, but it's sad that what was once uh, isn't anymore. Every day is a good day. It means that 
we give up our regrets. We give up wishing for another condition. We give up our guilt and our judgments and our tremendous need to improve ourselves in the world. And we live just like a traveling monk who never takes off her sandals just doing our best to meet uh, the conditions of each moment of our lives with openness, totally exposed, called to every moment uh, with a full heart and accepting of whatever happens as a good day, even if it's something bad. And my son uh, said, well, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't able to party, but if I just sat there and was with them all in a quiet way, although it wasn't what I expected, I could appreciate it. So he appreciated the evening anyway. So uh, I offer you. Uh, this practice, if you are interested in sitting with, every day is a good day. Uh, bringing it into your meditation practice, breathing with it, remembering Master Yunmen and all of his trials and tribulations and joys and sorrows. I'm not asking about your past. I'm not asking about your prospects for the future. Every day is a good day. Every day is a good day. So, that's all I have to say. And uh, there's not too much time left, but some dialogue is part of this, right? So, what is it like around here? Do you really end exactly at nine, or five after nine, or pretty much exactly at nine? So, let's let's shoot for that and maybe a couple of comments or questions and then we'll hit the road, okay? <laughs> Traveling. Maybe there aren't any questions or comments. Yes? No? Yeah. Well, I haven't practiced Dzogchen meditation, and I don't know much about Dzogchen really, but I have some Dharma buddies who are Dzogchen teachers, and I have many Dharma buddies who are Dzogchen practitioners. And from what I could tell, uh, Dzogchen meditation and Zazen and Zen are pretty much the same practice, as far as I can tell. The techniques may differ somewhat. Zen tends to be, uh, like Suzuki Roshi says, uh, monotonous and simple. And I think that Dzogchen is probably more colorful in its pre presentation, but the essential meditation practice seems to be about the same thing. It's an object, fundamentally an objectless meditation, just being present without contemplating something. Although one may have something to contemplate temporarily to kind of focus you, the basic meditation is objectless. And in that, I believe they are uh, pretty much the same. But you better ask somebody who knows more than me. That's my impression. Yeah, there was a hand back there too. Yes. Uh, could you tell us a little more about the 
what I'm reading from. Well, there's a, I'm reading uh, from, this is uh, the Blue Cliff Record, translated by Thomas Cleary, which is available in a Shambhala. This is, in the old, uh, this is an old edition. It was first published in the 70s, and, and it was published in three volumes originally, but now you can buy a one-volume edition from Shambhala, which uh, includes all 100 cases. And uh, I think that uh, you should all buy one. <laughs> because really, it's one of the great things that uh, Shambhala uh, undertakes, as few people would do, to keep a book like this in print. It's not a popular book. It's not going to be, obviously, I mean, it's interesting, but it's not going to be a bestseller. And so in today's uh, book business, if something doesn't sell right away, you remainder it and kill it. And Shambhala is trying to uh, keep this and other texts like it in print. And I think that's a wonderful thing that they're doing. And so uh, really it would be a great service to Buddha Dharma for you to borrow it, buy it. And also, uh, if you, if you, you know, uh, it's fascinating to read in a way, you know, it really is. And it grows on you. So I would really encourage you to, uh, to uh, buy it if you have any inclination to do that. Yes. I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit about how to work with that point where the mind is in conflict with what's happening. So whether we're going to re regret or wishing things to be otherwise, and then that creates the separation from what mm -hmm. we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And how you work with that. Mm -hmm. Did you all hear that? No. How, how do you work with, and this will, I guess uh, it's time, so this will be our last uh, comment. How do you work with the mind that is in conflict with what's happening, that, that isn't the mind that is not practicing every day is a good day, then what do you do when, when your mind is that way? Which is, which is, of course, probably you're not the only one here who has that <laughs> question, who feels that way a lot of the time. Well, to me, uh, this is my uh, feeling about this. The, f the first thing is it's really good to be clear about the fact that uh, to regret, wish for other conditions and so on, truly is disadvantageous, truly is not the way to practice in our lives. I mean, I think we really, despite everything, believe that regret is somehow going to help, or it's a good idea, or it makes sense. So I think we need to study our own mind and to see, even if we have to suffer a lot, uh, to really study, you know, does what happens? What is it? What, what is the what is the condition of the mind that's regretting, that's resisting uh, situations? And uh, if we do that, we will see that uh, if we let go of resistance, there's happiness, even in, in bad conditions. And if we continue to have resistance to conditions which cannot be changed, then uh, we suffer. So just to be aware of mental states and to come uh, to see clearly uh, that uh, not taking a step into our lives uh, is always painful. And then actually breathing, breathing and awareness of the body. Uh, sometimes when I get all confused and, and, and uh, you know, overwrought mental state, I just say to myself, oh, you know, I'm really confused. And then I try to stop right where I am and just breathe and be aware, oh, my body is all scrunched up with all this tension and I'm so worried. What am I worried about? You know, what's the difference? 
And anyway, even if it is different, is my being all scrunched up about it helping? No. Am I happy? No. I'm not happy. Just today I was in this very state. <laughs> because I've got too many things to do and I'm thinking, oh, geez. Well, you know, what if, so what? Why should I be so, I mean, this is helping? No. And after all, suppose I don't get this and this and this done. So what? So I reminded myself and I tried to breathe and it, and it helped. It did help. So you have to just, you really have to, uh, you have to have an excellent Dharma teacher at all times nearby. <laughs> you do. It's, you really must. And of course, that Dharma teacher is yourself. That's why uh, you have to listen to the Dharma and study the Dharma and really you have to train yourself. You actually have to take yourself in hand as though you were a child who persistently kept making stupid mistakes that caused suffering. And you have to take that child in hand and say, look, this isn't doing you or me any good. <laughs> and then very patiently, just as you would with a child that you love very much who repeated the same mistakes frequently, uh, you would try your best to be patient and not destroy your relationship with that child by constantly uh, making yourself frustrated over harping. But just find skillful ways of little by little bringing him or her along. You have to do that with yourself, little by little. In Zen, there is this method also of working with a koan and sitting with it and building up a very powerful sense of being present in the meditation practice which you extend through the day and that helps you to do this. But this is very important, most important thing. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. So, well, we did it. We gave our talk at Spirit Rock. Congratulations. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you all one at a time or in a group in the future. Come visit us at Green Gulch. We're, we're there. And our pro we have a program like this on Sunday, as many of you, I'm sure, know. And you're more than welcome to come. So, thank you. I'm going to, you can get up and leave and everything, but I'm going to, uh, if you don't mind, do three more vows. That's my tradition. But don't let me stop you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, you can. Uh. A few quick announcements. Uh, next week, who's going to be here next week? Sokne Rinpoche. Rinpoche will be here next Monday. And then uh, Jack Hornfield will be back Monday after that. This Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock, Sylvia Borstein will be here, 9 to 11. And a special request that when you go home tonight, make sure you take your own shoes. <laughs> See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.
donate.